Our first reading is from Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for your help, but you do not listen? Or cry to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 5 to 13. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Wherever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And our third reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone, who, someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as, unholy, as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know, for we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need not persevere so that when you have done the will of, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is the word of the Lord. Tough text. A tough text. Uh, Today you'll find 
that we have no interest in domesticating God as if he could be domesticated. Rather, we treat seriously his word as we explore it together. Shall I pray? Father, the book of Hebrews is meat, not milk. So feed us then, Father. Nourish us by your Holy Spirit. Sustain us and challenge us through and towards Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jesus famously said in Mark 13, the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. Now there's context in Mark 13, it's not easy, but he's speaking to people who might find themselves wobbly in their faith. And Jesus is saying, now is not the time to fall over, but rather to remain in position, legs apart, firmly in place, until God fully brings his kingdom, that is the end, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. These are the words of Jesus. The context of this challenge is troubling times. So watch out that no one deceives you, Mark 13, verse 5. There's confusion. Many will come claiming to be the Messiah. Don't believe them, verse 6. You'll be handed over to authorities, kings, governors, verse 9. When you are arrested, verse 11, there'll be relational pain between family members. Who wants that? Verse 12, and indeed Jesus himself said the potential or possibility of death itself, which is why he says, everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. You can imagine Jesus, his marketing manager, pulling him aside and cautioning him, you know, don't you know you attract, you attract more bees with honey? Think it should go soft if you want more people, Jesus. But Jesus is not trying to increase religious market share. He's not trying to get people into church. He's in the business of saving lives, redeeming lives. Jesus outlined all of this ahead of time. What would happen in the life of the early church? And we who read Hebrews know this is exactly what did happen. As you know, in our series in Hebrews so far, insult, persecution, prison, confiscation of property. But the key image here in Mark 13 is of standing, of staying standing until the end. One of the reoccurring themes in the series is of being wobbly. And the reoccurring challenge is to stay standing or to stay on the path. Jesus himself also said, he also said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. So, so soak that in, soak that in. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and few find it. Jesus said that. Eugene Peterson famously called for a long obedience in the same direction. He was riffing off Friedrich Nietzsche when he said that, by the way. But here, Peterson is challenging us to stand firm till the end. How do you do this? 
Last week, Rob, who's leading the service, outlined what to do, given what we've heard so far, all the meat, not the milk. And the answer is, because of the blood of Christ, go in, go into the most holy place, be confident before God. Christ's blood has achieved this for you. Hold on to the hope that you have, for he who promised is faithful. Don't stop meeting together, all that. Last week, what to do. This week, as he foreshadowed last week, what not to do, what not to do. And the answer is, do not throw away your confidence. It's right there in verse 35. To do this, or rather to not do this, the writer urges us to know and experience two things, two things, and then to keep moving forward. And for this, we're going to go back to our guardrails that we spoke about earlier in the series. In order to stay standing firm till the end, I'll need three things, if you're following the outline printed in your orders of service. I'll need a guardrail to the left of me, a guardrail to the left of me, that's in verses 26 through 31, a guardrail to the right of me, verses 32 through 35, right, in order to not fall off, and a path in front of me with first steps in the right direction, verses 36 through 39. By the way, at 8.30, the, uh, a guy walked up to me and said, I think you showed a photo of the road that I built. Such is a city congregation. A guard to the left of a guardrail to the left of me, and the guardrail, firstly, is a warning from God in verses 26 through 31. The writer jump, dro drops a whole bunch of truth bombs in these verses. He goes full Oppenheimer. The words are hard to hear, they're hard to read. They are some of the strongest words you'll hear in the New Testament, although Jesus himself said things that are as strong, maybe stronger than this, don't domesticate Jesus. He can't be domesticated. These words are meant to be guardrails, but on one side only, we'll come to a, a guardrail on the right in a moment, on one side only, they're not a device to scare people, to get people to do what you want. That's when you don't believe what is coming, but you use it anyway as a tactic. This is not that. This is not about control but rather this is a convicted cry from someone who knows there's a touch of the prophet going on in these verses. This, is, this, of course, is what we mean when we say, I believe that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We said it a moment ago. But what I want to do is just read the words to you so that they can sink in. Follow in your Bibles, if you like, or just close your eyes. Listen, verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished 
who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. We know that God. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't want to go there. Now that's full on, isn't it? Anybody think that's full on? I'll put my glasses on to make sure I can see some heads nodding. Do you feel like that's full on? A couple of things to say while you let these words sink in. Deliberately keep on, keeping on sinning is not doing wrong things from time to time, like if we had an addiction that we couldn't sort of work out what to do with, or even just a moral weakness or something. We, we all have them. Deliberately keeping on sinning is, in the context of Hebrews, I believe, the state of apostasy, namely that of walking away from the Lord, giving it all up, and continuing to do so if we deliberately keep on sinning. And it's the context that tells you that this is true. I'm not making this up. So, for example, in verse 28, the comparison is rejecting the law of Moses, not, not disobeying from time to time. It's rejecting the law of Moses, or in the King James Version, despising the law of Moses. In verse 35, it's about throwing away your confidence In verse 36, it's about not persevering. In verse 39, it's towards those who shrink back. This, of course, is meant as a particular word to believers. The writer does not have in mind rank outsiders, but rather, verse 26, those who have already received the knowledge of the truth. The writer evokes Moses, as he has been doing for several chapters. That is, he's on message. If we deliberately keep on sinning, verse 26, after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. That's Moses. In the Torah, you could sacrifice for the sins you commit. You could even sacrifice for those you didn't mean to keep, uh, to to commit. But if you willfully commitment, with a high hand, look at me for a moment. You've got to get, with a high hand, that is, I don't care, I'm proud. I'm going to keep doing this. God should have my opinion of things. I'll do what I want when I want. Well, in the law of Moses, even there you have no sacrifice for sins left. This means, by the way, that God doesn't just judge sin, but he also looks into your heart. He knows what willful looks like. And more on Moses. Verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's evoking Old Testament texts. So rejecting the law of Moses or the Torah was big, but the point is rejecting Jesus is bigger, and you know it. That's why he says, how much more severely do you think? You see that? Do you see that? How much much do you think? See, if you know it, How much do you think, verse 29, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? These things mentioned here, three of them, they're all powerful. A, 
trample the Son of God underfoot. B, treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant. C, insulted the spirit of grace. They're all the same thing. All true, none of them control. All designed for you to feel the truth. Some pressure from God. Trampling the Son of God underfoot. There's the Son of God, and by my actions, I stomp on him. Let that sink in. Treating as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant, the very covenant that, sank, that made them holy in the first place. That is, you treat as cheap that which is most supremely and divinely valuable. And lastly, you insult the spirit of grace. I spoke to a young man yesterday for whom this verse was key to his returning to the Lord. He'd walked away from the faith as a teenager in spectacular fashion. He wanted to be captain of his own soul, do what he wanted. He bought the line, if you feel it, you should do it. But he had a sense of God and he decided that the thief on the cross that repented was going to be, was his hero. Uh, and the reason why the thief on the cross that repented was his hero is because it meant that he could do what he wanted the whole life, his whole life, and then just take a little, little, turn the little switch on at the end. And so he went into full rebellion, drugs, multiple sexual partners. But rock bottom, if I can use the words of Jesus from the prodigal son and the pigsty of his own choices in a far off country, he risked church again. And he heard this very text, verse 29, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? And he said, that was me. My whole thief on the cross game plan was simply a way of treating Christ's sacrifice as a cheap thing, trampling on grace. He used the words abusing, abusing Jesus' forgiveness and sitting there in church, he was not prepared to do that any longer. He's now in ministry in Bulai, to south of God's country. Verse 29 and 30, two quotes. We know that God alone is judge. We know him who says, it is mine to avenge, I will pay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then a sobering warning, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Perhaps there's no other space that I can go to that might help us than this famous one from C.S. Lewis in Narnia. Aslan, of course, is a lion and he's Christ. Here are the words. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought it was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, I had to know this experience, and I did know this experience when I was a kid. I don't know what it was about me in particular, the way God had touched me, but I felt this hand of God over me. I felt the hand of God above me. I was very willing to accept texts like this is true. I know there'll be some people in the room here today who are like, I, I just, re I, it's too negative. I just reject it. That wasn't me. As a kid, I'm like, that's true because there's a holy God who could see my actions and read my motives, you know, almighty God unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no, no secrets are hidden. I knew that. He was full of truth, pressing in on me. It was powerful, but hard. 
I, of course, needed to learn about grace. So you'll need a second guardrail. This guardrail to the right of you is your conviction about the goodness of God or the gospel, the light you received, verse 32. Remember those early days after you received the light. The writer of Hebrews doesn't in our text say what the light is here, but you gain it from the context, previous verses, and going on into chapter 11 and 12. Here he says that the uh, beautiful things, the receiving the light is the better and lasting possessions you will receive. It's about transforming hope. It's hinted in the warning text of blood of the covenant and spirit of grace, but here's the key to this, the pastoral key. He says, remember those days, deliberately remember them. Intentionally recall a previous period of great conflict, is what he says to them, right after they became followers of Jesus Christ. Stop and remember that day that it was so sweet. Verse 32, remember, you remember those early days after you received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. You endured. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. All of those things were prices you were willing to pay precisely because you received the light in those early days. You endured through a great conflict in those early days, and you weren't prepared to give them up. And the reason you were not prepared to give them up is because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You made the right investment. What are the better and lasting possessions? Well, come back next week. We say that every week. Because whatever they are, they are better than all your property. That is, you could be, in this life, insulted. You could have your reputation shredded for your faith in Christ. You could be persecuted. You could be put in prison. You could have all your property confiscated. But because of the gospel, you will not, you cannot lose. You can't lose. Not ultimately. And since the gospel is better than your reputation your opinion, your time, your possessions, indeed your own life, I urge you to stay standing. I think the psalmist gets at this when he writes to God, because your love is better than life. Your love is better than life itself. My lips will glorify you. Jesus was explicit. Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age, home, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with them, possessions, persecutions, persecutions. Were you listening? And in the age to come, eternal life. When I was a kid, I felt the heavy hand of God above me and it made me pretty serious about God and, quite frankly, a pretty serious kid. I needed to learn about grace. When I got to university, I understood the grace of God for the first time, in part from a sermon from a very young Robert Forsyth. They made him a bishop because of this sermon. Thank you. 
I found out in that moment or in that season that there was not only a God above me, that was true, but also the same God below me, a right hand upholding me, loving me, full of grace and truth. The psalmist goes on, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I will sing in the shadow of your wings. I will cling to you, I not let go. Your right hand upholds me. A God only above me, if you believe in that, is a God I'll run from, I'll be afraid of. I'll call him an ogre and write books about it. A God only below me is a God that I'll take advantage of. <clears throat> W.A. Jordan put words in a piece he was writing, put words in King Herod's mouth. Every cook will argue, I like committing crimes, God likes forgiving them, really the world is admirably arranged. We need both. And I now live my life in this space. That's, I'm looking at everybody in this church here. <laughs> I now live in this space. I think it's called faith in Jesus Christ. But note what the writer does. He's asking you to recall those days so as to not let them go through weariness or over-familiarity, to intentionally remember the past, to remember the hour you first believed. John Newton, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. So he says, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Guardrails to the left of me, guardrails to the right of me, and a path in front of me, the first step in the right direction. Remember Eugene Peterson? You need a long obedience in the same direction. Well, you need to take the next step today to side with faith, even through difficult times, don't let the cynics get into your ear. Consider what you have to lose by keeping the property and the reputation. Take stock of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Live and then eventually, eventually, live and then eventually die in the grace of God. So what you need to do, verse 36, you'll need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll have, you receive what he has promised, like a marathon runner taking one step in front of you all the way to the end. I did a marathon in COVID. It wasn't pretty. And my legs got wobbly. There's even a word for it, which marathon runners know. Of course my legs got wobbly on a long journey. All legs go wobbly on a long journey. The journey is long and difficult. Same with faith. But the metaphor of, of a marathon, the writer will use in chapter 12 when he'll say, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Amen? Then the writer hyperlinks to the prophet, a prophet in the Jewish scriptures, indeed to Habakkuk, whom he quotes in verses 36 and 38. We read chapter 1, as you correctly did, but I meant to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So go home and read it. In fact, read chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4. 
Habakkuk witnessed the junk around him, his world going to pot, and maybe you feel the same way. There was no indication that the faithfulness of God was a good bet, that the fig tree does not blossom. There's no fruit on the vine. In fact, he complains to God about it all. He says, what are you doing, God? And God tells him, actually, it's going to get worse. No catching bees with honey. But Habakkuk is told, even in the darkness, and we're invited to join him, verse 37, for in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Though it linger, wait for it, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. No matter how long it takes for the vindication to arrive, it will, verse 38, and so my righteous one will live by faith, not by sight, in the darkness, and I will take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. They'll trust me in the dark, like Habakkuk, says God. And later we'll find out, like the prophets of old, like Jesus himself, like all the people we hear about next week and the week after, and they will not shrink back. And then the writer says, you know what? That's you. There's a real sense of confidence in the people he's writing to in verse 39 when he says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not us. And I don't believe, as your pastor, I do not believe that this is you. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Some of you today will need to learn, maybe for the first time, that there is a bold confidence to be had in being a Christian. In fact, a Christian is a person who holds to their confidence. A divine confidence, light to receive, and I invite you, even now, to go there, to go in. But many people in the room will already have such a confidence and there is a possibility in the future of throwing it away, of becoming weary, of being wobbly, and then trampling such a confidence underfoot. And I'm urging you, urging you not to go there. And so it might be worth spending some time this week doing what the writer says we should do. To recall those glorious times of sweet faith, recounting the goodness of God so that you'll have fuel to continue. And next week, we'll talk about the goal of the journey from your next step, the fuel for the journey, and we'll talk about your guide. I do have how John Newton writes in his testimony that he penned to paper, and we keep singing his testimony. We're going to do it in a moment like we did two weeks ago, seated in John Newton's testimony, and we're invited to sing his testimony Through many dangers, tours, and snares, I have already come. This grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Jesus said, the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. Let's pray. Father, all of us are getting older at exactly the same rate, and some of us feel in our own legs and hips and knees the experience of aging and uh, we pray that in time some of those ailments that we know and experience might be solved at the hands perhaps of a surgeon or some other path but this morning we do not pray for our knees and our hips and our legs we pray rather for our spiritual knees our spiritual legs our spiritual feet and we ask you that you will help us even unto death, even when our physical legs are perhaps maybe no longer useful to us, we pray that our spiritual legs will will remain standing until the end. 
through dangers, toils, snares, the loss of reputation, the potential even as it was in the first century of prison or maybe even martyrdom. That doesn't appear to be us, but uh, at the same time, the possibility of being wobbly and falling over is still real and live. And so we just, just ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit that you'll give us what we need, blood of Christ, Christ as an example, lively faith. Give it to us, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.